Back in 1966, Patricia and I had been married for two years. I had a good job, and we lived in a nice place between Denver and Boulder, Colorado. As they say, I was fat, dumb, and happy. Then one day I received a letter from the Selective Service Board that um, I was to take a pre-induction physical. It was during the Vietnam War, and I was kind of surprised by that because uh, I was married, and up to that point in time, they hadn't been taking married men, and I didn't know anybody personally that uh, had been drafted. So anyway, I went down and took my pre-induction physical that I passed. At the end of it, they told me that my group would be inducted into the Marine Corps. Uh, as I say, the war was going on, and I had read the news and seen TV reports, and the Marines were suffering heavy casualties. Having an aversion to being shot at, I decided that I would see if I could enlist in something else that wasn't quite so dangerous. So I went down and beat on the door of my Navy recruiter and the Air Force recruiter and Coast Guard recruiter, National Guard recruiter. Apparently, a lot of other guys had the same aversion I had of being shot at, and so those services were all filled. They couldn't take any more. A few days later, before I left, I got a call from a Navy recruiter and said, we have an opening. There is a person that backed out. Would you like to take his place? Well, I jumped at the chance, and we both, Patty and I, uh, breathed a sigh of relief. None of that slogging around in the jungle, trying to get killed. I shipped off to a Navy boot camp in San Diego. I remember that my brother, he was in the CBs already. He had pretty cushy duty stateside, and so I thought, well, that's, that's good for me. I'll try that. So in boot camp, I applied for the CBs, and um, they said, well, you have to take some tests, and we'll see if you have an aptitude for it. And I did, and I won the academic award for my company at boot camp, so I got to select the CBs. So they sent me down to San Diego to a Class A school for construction and engineering, and Patricia got to come along with me. Well, I was told while I was in school that if I uh, got good scores in my classes that there was a good chance that I could select my own duty station. I really applied myself and I got the best scores of my class. Not only that, I got the best scores of the whole school. There was about three or four hundred guys. And uh, on graduation I was awarded, awarded top honor man. And I thought, well, this is going just the way I want it because maybe I'll get to select my duty station. Well, we were supposed to get our orders in four days. And four days came around and they passed out the orders and some of the guys in my class got places like Spain, one got Morocco, somebody got Guam, somebody else actually got Hawaii, someone got Alaska. When I opened my orders, it said, you are ordered to Mobile Construction Battalion 11, and they were preparing to go to Vietnam. The next thing I knew, I was down in Camp Pendleton, north of San Diego there at the big Marine base, being trained for combat. And not too long after that, I was on an airplane to Vietnam. My job, or our job, as Seabees was to build forward combat camps for the Marines all along the DMZ the uh, dividing line between North and South Vietnam, and it was one of the most heavily contested areas 
in the Vietnam War. For about 18 months, I was rained upon with mortars and artillery and rockets almost daily and nightly. I dodged shrapnel and bullets. I didn't know if I was going to live through it. In fact, there was times when I thought I was going to not make it. It was, I would be killed or at least maimed or something like that. I wondered how I got there. I wondered how that happened to me. How I could be on the other side of the globe in such a god-awful place with people who were persistent and capable of killing me? It just didn't make sense. And one afternoon or early evening, I picked up the little pocket Bible that my mother had given me and I started to read it and I started to pray. And that was the beginning of a change in my life. I uh, viewed life differently after that and um, came to Christ. My repentance was a long and rocky road. He didn't take me out of that situation right away. I got to go home for a while on our normal, normal rotation, but I had to go back and spend another nine months there, almost in the same place that I was before. But I look back on it now and look back on my life and I see that God was with me and brought us both through this whole thing that we experienced. He revealed his grace and his love and I realize now that as a result of that experience, I've had many blessings that were directly tied to it. And so that's my story of an unexpected event that changed my life. Well, Gary, thanks for sharing your story. We've been going through this series talking about the unexpected and, and the ways that life, God often brings those unexpected twists into our lives that at the time, they make no sense. And yet, when God changes our plans so often down the road, we look back and we, we see what he was up to. And yet, he puts the most surprising people sometimes in the most critical places. There's a guy named Vovan who was the captain of his professional sports team which actually wasn't what he trained for. He hadn't trained to be an athlete. He'd actually earned a degree in law and was planning to become a lawyer up until he became a writer for television cartoons. He didn't just write for cartoons. He actually became a voice actor for cartoon characters and, uh, and then also started doing his own stand-up comedy routines. Uh, actually, Vovan wasn't his real name. Vovan was the name of one of the characters that he played. And uh, professional sports wasn't his end game either. In a weird twist, he moved from comedy into politics. And of course today, the guy who was probably unknown to most Americans is one of the probably best known and most admired leaders right now on the world stage. You've probably guessed that Vovan is Vladimir Zelensky. The president of Ukraine, a man who quite unexpectedly became the face and the voice of his people's fight for freedom, and a man who seems to have found himself quite unexpectedly standing in the wrong place, but at the right time. 
The Bible character I want to look at this morning is another unlikely leader who also found herself unexpectedly thrust into the spotlight as both the face and the voice of her endangered people. Today we want to take a look at the story of Esther, or as actually her uh, Hebrew name, Hebrew name was Hadessa. Uh, she was a woman who had no political aspirations. There was nothing in her background to tell you that she would become a linchpin figure in the history of her people. To really appreciate the drama of the situation that Esther would find herself in, you need to understand a little bit about the setting in which she lived. The intersection of the story of Israel and the Persian Empire started a little before 600 BC. And it was around that time that the Egyptian pharaoh Nebuchadnezzar conquered the land of Judah, and in that he also deported many of the Jewish elites back to Babylon. If you know the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel tells us about Daniel's experience, his three friends, who were among those who were deported and re-enculturated into Babylonian life. And, and there were many repatriation movements that happened over the years. There were many Jews who eventually were able to return back to their homeland, but there also were many who continued to live in Babylon. The Egyptians were eventually defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and the Persian Empire became the global titan of its day. It was the dominating world power. It was an empire that would dominate for over 200 years, and the story of Esther falls near the middle of that 200-year Persian Empire, at the zenith of its power. The reigning king of Persia in the time of Esther was a guy named King Ahasuerus, and he was a Bemoc a big man on campus, and it was a big campus that he was the big man on. Uh, he reigned all the way from India to Ethiopia. The drama that eventually came to engulf Esther started as a big feast that didn't involve her at all. The book of Esther tells us that King Ahasuerus had gathered all of his officials for this gala show and tell event. This seems to have been the way that uh, ancient kings established their importance and their power. They did a giant show-off of everything that they owned and all of their power. And uh, what a show it was. Look at Esther 1.4. He showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. I mean, think about that. A six-month show-and-tell party. Uh, it had to be full of musical concerts, there were art displays, there were entertainers, there were exhibitions of his vast wealth, museum exhibits, military parades, sports competitions. Uh, it must have been something akin to the World's Fair and the Olympics all rolled into one as he invited everyone to come to the Capitol and see how great his kingdom was. Dignitaries, elites came from far and wide to be wooed and wowed by the most powerful man on earth. And then, to top it off, as if a six-month exhibition wasn't impressive enough, the closing ceremonies lasted for seven days, a seven-day feast that everyone was invited to. From pauper to prince, everyone was invited. 
the only thing that I can connect this to are some of the sites that Burnett and I saw back in 2017 when we had a chance for a few days along with Regina Gilstrom to visit Istanbul. And as you're there in Istanbul, what was Constantinople, you see all of these magnificent palaces and cathedrals and mosques where leaders from long ago tried to demonstrate their power, their glory, and you're surrounded by it. One of the sites that struck me wasn't one of the palaces, it was part of one of the palaces, but it was the, at the Topkapi Palace. Sorry, it's not a great picture, but this is an image of one of the kitchens. And, and there is, I think there were like 10 stacks like that. Those were for the ovens in this kitchen. And I understand this one kitchen in this one palace prepared meals for 4,000 people per day. That just gives you some sense of the magnitude of these ancient empires, the, the people that they cared for, the wealth that these kings had. I can only imagine it was something like this that allowed King Ahasuerus to throw this extravagant, days-long feast for everyone that could come. And there was lots of food. And there was lots of wine. There was lots and lots of wine. In fact, here's the king's edict. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. Now you just imagine the entire city drinking as much as they want for seven days, and you can guess that this party had gone south by about day two. Well, after that much partying, it's not surprising that the king was not doing his best thinking. That brings us to Esther 1.10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. I guess it was. And he gets the bright idea that he should have his queen paraded out on stage in front of everybody there because apparently she was a looker. Here's what it says. The king says, bring Queen Vashti with her royal crown to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. Now, it's a little hard to tell from this if the king meant that he wanted her to show up with nothing but the crown. But, but you get this sense, and whatever the request was, Queen Vashti was not impressed. This, to her, was not part of her royal duties, and so being ogled by a bunch of drunks, she said, no, I'm not going to do it. Now, this was a long time before there was anything resembling modern feminism. And if a king gave you an order, especially if the Persian king, whose word was the law of the land, gave you an order, well, a girl just didn't say no. But Vashti said no. And her saying no came to concern the leaders, not just because she was being a party pooper, but they were specifically worried that it might start a feminist movement. Uh, other women might decide that they too could say no to their husbands. This really is the conversation. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded. Memukin answered the king and his nobles. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every noble and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere 
will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, the wives of all the king's nobles throughout Persia and Media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. You gotta ask yourself how these guys have been treating their wives if the fact that one woman said no to her husband one time makes them fear there's going to be a cultural revolution over it. So with that expert counsel, probably also fueled by seven days of drinking, the king decrees that Queen Vashti is no longer the queen. She is banished and a new queen is sought. And you gotta love the notice that the king sends throughout the kingdom as the follow-up to this. He sent letters to all parts of the empire, to each province in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. See, I, I, don't, I don't think that King Ahasuerus had ever read what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. You just realize the difference that the gospel is supposed to bring into human relationships. How the gospel is supposed to change the way husbands and wives relate to each other. Husbands, love your wives. The way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But King Ahasuerus didn't buy into that. And so Vashti was deposed and a nationwide beauty contest was undertaken. I said that there were many Jews from the time of Daniel who had stayed in Babylon, and in many ways they had blended in, uh, yet they had also held on to their identity. And among those was a man named Mordecai and his family. And in his family was a much younger cousin, a girl named Hadessa, also known as Esther. Uh, that name likely is derived from the Persian goddess Ishtar which was evidence that she had grown up in this very secularized society. Her parents had died, and Mordecai had adopted her as his daughter. And there's two things that we learn about Esther from this story. We learn first that she was an adopted orphan. The second thing you learn is she was a stunner. Esther 2.7, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Not my words, that's what the Bible says. I remember a friend of mine years ago told about uh, his father who had been at the, the annual meeting of a, a kind of an old, very staid and true conservative denomination. And uh, as part of giving their annual reports for various things, a young woman came up to give a report on their finances. And, and apparently she was a very pretty young lady. And so she gave the report and she gave the finals for the year and it was a really encouraging report. The, the numbers were really good. And so she, as she left the stage, the aging president of the denomination came up to the podium and he looked out, smiled big and said, those are the kind of figures I can really get excited about. <laughs> well, that brings us back to the royal hunt for a new queen. If you read the book of Esther, you'll find the number one criteria the king put out, in fact, the only criteria he put out was that she had to be good looking. And based on that, Esther gets picked 
for the royal beauty draft. When she does, Mordecai, her cousin, her adopted father, has one bit of advice, and that is, as she heads off to the royal harem, he says, keep your ethnicity to yourself. Don't tell them that you're a Jew. Uh, her Persian name gave evidence that her family was thoroughly absorbed into the culture. And so at that point, there weren't any 23andMe DNA tests. So if you didn't tell anybody where you were from, really there was no way they would know. So Mordecai says, just keep that to yourself for now. Well, apparently she was lovely indeed because we're told that she caught the attention of the manager of the harem. And that when he saw Esther, he immediately hit the golden buzzer and moved her directly to the final round of Purge's Got Beauty. So when all was said and done, the king agreed. Hadessa was a winner. She was the winner. She was declared the queen. Uh, meanwhile, cousin Mordecai, like an overprotective dad, was hanging around the palace trying to keep tabs on Esther. And he was standing near one of the palace gates and ended up overhearing two guards having a conversation. And apparently they had some kind of a grudge against the king. And he heard them discussing a plot to assassinate the king. That's a pretty big deal. And so Mordecai goes and tells Esther. Esther tells the king, the plot is found out, and the bad guys hang. Uh, an after-action police report is filed, put into the official files, and uh, that was the end of the matter, or so it seemed. Now enters a dark character in this story, and that is the character Haman. Haman is this upwardly mobile official who, through a combination of talent and wit and determination had gotten himself promoted about as high as you could get promoted in the king's court. One of the perks of being the big cheese is that official court etiquette dictated that people were to bow as you passed by. Now, I've never experienced something like that, but I've got to believe that's, that's kind of a head rush to walk through a crowd and have everyone step aside and bow as you pass by. Uh, the closest I've ever come, years ago, when I was in seminary, I was working part-time for the sheriff's department in L.A., and uh, they took a bunch of us who were civilians and had us move a whole bunch of brand-new police cars from a parking area in downtown L.A. out to a staging area for an election that was coming up. So we're in these long processions of brand-new black and whites moving through downtown L.A. We're not going anywhere except to another parking lot, right? We're not cops. But the light, I remember getting this intersection, and the light turns red, so we stop, so the traffic could go. The other traffic wouldn't move. <laughs> they just sit there. They don't know why there are 100 cop cars moving down the street, but they're not about to get in the middle of it. We finally just had to drive through because they wouldn't go. So that had to be something like the feeling that Mordecai got, uh, I mean, Haman got, as, as he went about his day. People just stepped aside and bowed respectfully. And he liked that. Well, one particular day, Haman was making his way into the palace complex. He's enjoying the usual human wave of bowing people. Uh, and one of his aides, though, noticed that there was a guy who wasn't bowing. The guy was none other than Mordecai, the queen's cousin. Now, they knew who he was. They didn't know who he was related to, which is going to turn out to be a serious oversight. Well, when Haman finds out, he is mad. I mean, really mad about the, the insult that has been paid to his grand person. I recently read an article in the New York Times with uh, it was an interview with Al Pacino. 
and apparently it's the 50th anniversary of the movie The Godfather. And he was recounting some stories from his acting career, and he talked at once about a friend who had phoned him. And the friend on the phone said, you must be alone. And his reply was priceless. He said, no, I'm here with my ego. <laughs> that would be Haman. Haman was never alone. He always had his ego with him. As the story unfolds, we find that Haman and his ego are BFFs. They're best friends forever. And so on finding out that Mordecai had the audacity not to bow, Haman's Putin-esque egomania kicks in. It doesn't just kick in, it goes nuclear. He decides that eliminating Haman alone wouldn't really recompense the grave insult that his personal glory has suffered. And what he needs to do is he needs to take it out on all of Haman's people. So he concocts a big story. He spreads word that the Ukrainians are a danger to the empire. Oh, no, wait, wrong egomaniac. He tells the king that there's an ethnic group within the empire that is nothing but trouble. And, and he offers to make a generous contribution to the king's treasury if he'll let him take care of the problem. And so King Ahasuerus, being a busy world dictator, didn't bother to dig into the facts too much. He just declared that Haman can do as he wishes with the alleged renegades. Uh, specifically, he has royal permission to go, excuse me, go ahead and annihilate them. There's nothing like a little genocide to keep the kingdom running smoothly, proving that Persian kings could be a bit impulsive. Esther 3.15. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Which brings us back to Mordecai. Mordecai, of course, hears what's going to happen. He's grieved. He's frantic. He, he has to do something to try and stop this impending disaster for his people. If getting things done isn't a matter of what you know but who, Mordecai realizes that he knows a pretty important who. And so he goes to the palace to try and communicate with Esther. Interestingly, he feels compelled, if you read the story, he feels compelled to take a copy of the king's edict with him because apparently they didn't have social media inside the royal harem. Esther has no idea what's happening on the outside. Mordecai's request is simple. He says, Esther, please go to the king and do something. But you see, there's this problem. Persian kings were big on rules. And one ironclad rule was that on pain of death, nobody enters the king's presence unless the king summons them. And the king had not summoned Esther. Well, here's what Mordecai says. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Well, Esther is stirred to action. And she asked Mordecai to mobilize the people to pray and fast for her for three days. She says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So the people around pray. Esther, too, begins to pray and fast and seek God as to what she should do. 
And maybe God used the fasting, that nagging hunger in her stomach, but Esther got thinking about food and feasting. Whatever it was, a plan began to take form. And Esther knew enough about the egos of kings and evil henchmen that she started by playing on their egos. She invites the king and Haman to her place for lunch. I'm pretty sure this was not a peanut butter and jelly affair. I mean, we are talking about the queen who has access to the royal MasterCard, who wants to impress a king that we already know thinks a party should last at least six months. So the king is flattered at the invitation. Haman is over the moon. I mean, a personal invite to a private lunch, a really good private lunch with the most powerful man in the world and the most beautiful woman in the kingdom. What could possibly go wrong? Unfortunately, on the way home from this lunch invite, Haman runs into Mordecai, who is sitting in the gate of the palace. He's sitting in the gate of the palace. He doesn't get up. He doesn't bow. He's just sitting there. I'm not sure if Mordecai stared him down, or worse, maybe he just ignored Mr. Royal Full of himself. But Haman is incensed. Whatever he did, it sent Haman's narcissism into a complete nuclear meltdown. So check out his speech when he gets home. He sent and brought his friends, his wife Zeresh, and Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he'd advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Don't forget, this whole speech is all because one guy didn't stand up and acknowledge him. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet all this, get this, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Wow. My entire career, every accomplishment I've ever had means nothing to me if this one guy won't pay me respect. Pretty crazy. Well, trying to shelter her husband's China doll ego, Mrs. Haman comes up with a great idea. Uh, the Jews are going to be annihilated in a few days anyway. How about doing something special for the guy that started all the trouble? How about you build a 50-foot gallows in front of the house and hang him there? That will both improve the view from the front deck, at least if you're a homicidal maniac, and it will get rid of this troublemaker. And Haman loves the idea. The construction is undertaken immediately, and with the happy sound of gallows hammers pounding, Haman skips off to bed to dream dreams of grand lunches to come. While Haman was dreaming about lunch, it appears that something in the king's lunch hadn't set right. Uh, the king can't sleep. And so, desperate for something that will bore him to slumber, he calls for the royal storybook reader to come and read him something from the royal history book. If reading government documents won't put you to sleep, nothing will. It just so happens that one of the seemingly random passages the reader turns to is an almost forgotten episode in their recent history. It was the record of this guy named Mordecai foiling the assassination plot on the king's life. And with that memory jogger, the king stops the royal reader and he says, did we ever send a thank you to that guy for what he did? And his consultants look around and say, you know, I, I don't think we ever did. 
And so, eager to fix his oversight, the king asks if any royal counselors are handy to help him correct this grave injustice. Apparently, the reading had gone on for quite a while because we're told that it's now early morning. And as luck would have it, also known as Providence, Haman had been too excited to stay home and had just shown up early for work. I don't know if the, the gallows contractors had come in early and the pounding woke him up, or if he wanted to get a few things out of his in-basket before he headed off to that big lunch. Uh, if he'd actually known what the king had been reading, I'm pretty sure he would have just stayed in bed and pulled the blankets up. But he didn't know, and he heard the king needed someone for a, an important consultation, and so eager to please, Haman charges in like the Lone Ranger. And the king explains his problem. He says, I have been remiss in not rewarding someone who has done me a great service. And Haman, I need your help to figure out how I should honor this man. So Haman does a quick calculation about who this mystery man must be. And he comes up with the only awesome person he can think of. <laughs> me. It must be about me, because that's how Haman's world worked. Everything was about him. And when opportunity knocks, Haman, baby, throw open the door. So here's what he says. If the king wishes to honor someone, whoever that might be, he should bring out one of the king's own royal robes, as well as a horse the king himself has ridden, uh, one with a, a royal emblem on his head. You can see him concocting this in his head as he's going. He keeps getting better and better. Uh, and then uh, let robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials and let him see that the man whom the king wishes, whomever that man might be, to honor, is dressed in the king's robes and led through the city square on the king's horse. Have the officials shout as they go, this is what the king does for someone he wishes to honor. Can't you see him just living this dream out in technicolor in his mind? This is gonna be like the best day of his life. It's gonna start off with a grand parade through the city square on the king's horse. It's gonna finish up with lunch with the queen that afternoon. And that evening, he gets to watch Haman hang on the gallows he just built. Can a day get any better than this? Don't you almost feel bad for what's about to happen? Yeah, me neither. Okay, so Esther 6.10. The king says, excellent. Quick, take the robes of my horse, do just as you've said, for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the gate of the palace, leave out nothing you've suggested. I love how it makes a point that it's Mordecai who sits at the gate of the palace, because that's the whole thing that got this story to begin with, that Mordecai was sitting in the gate of the palace. And so Haman does it, because if a Persian king tells you to jump, you jump. When it's all over, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. I'm going to guess he sat down again. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. The only redeeming virtues are that the gallows are coming along nicely and Haman still has that great lunch with the queen, which is something, finally, that won't involve Mordecai. You know, I heard a blues song a couple weeks ago that I think Haman might have really enjoyed. The title was, The Worst is Yet to Come. Okay, so I told you this lunch with the queen was no PB&J affair. Check out Esther 7.2. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast. Okay, that's some lunch if you're still enjoying the after-lunch libations on the second day. 
The king, once again, is enjoying the wine and the presence of a beautiful woman. He's feeling fine, but he's also sensing that there may be more to this lunch than just lunch. And so he asked the queen, okay, what do you want me to do? And uh, you remember way back at the start of the story how cousin Mordecai had told her not to tell about her family origins? And she had never told the king where she was from until now. She tells the king that her people are in grave danger. There's this enemy that's threatening their extinction, not just enslavement, but she says actually extermination. Now, you might wonder, well, how could the king not immediately know who she's talking about? But you have to realize in a kingdom the size of Persia, there were lots of tribal groups scattered far and wide with plenty of regional conflicts that probably never amounted to enough to warrant the attention of King Ahasuerus. But this one is personal. Wherever this young beauty is from, somebody is threatening those that she loves. He can see the tears welling up in those totally beautiful, captivating eyes. And as the tears well up, the king's indignation rises. Who is it, he demands. Who would have the audacity, who could be such a fool as to harm one hair of those that my beautiful queen loves. Now, the biblical account doesn't tell us this, but I have a sneaking suspicion that Haman was getting just as riled up because I don't think he knows who she's talking about yet either. The king, I'm sure he's thinking to himself, is going to want those troublemakers dealt with. And you know what? I'm just the man to do it. As soon as I finish off those aggravating Jews, these guys are going to be next in line. And imagine the hero that I'm going to be. Have you ever done math in your head and you got the answer all wrong? Well, Haman got it all wrong. King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. To say that lunch doesn't end well, at least for Haman, would be a gross understatement. By the time it's all done, Haman is swinging from the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. The day of annihilation that he had planned for the Jews is transformed into a day of deliverance. If you want to read the whole story, take a look at Esther chapter 7 and 8. Esther's story is one unexpected turn after another. A young woman from a conquered minority becomes queen of the most powerful nation of its time. An assassination is unexpectedly foiled because the right man with the right connections just happened to be standing in the right place to overhear the right conversation. Uh, an egomaniac unexpectedly concocts and gets approval for a genocidal plot that it appears no one can stop. And the man that that maniac hates most unexpectedly turns out to be the cousin adoptive father of the most unlikely queen. And God weaves it all together once again unexpectedly to deliver his people from what seemed like certain doom. One of the interesting facts about the book of Esther is that God is nowhere directly mentioned in the narrative. In fact, I ran across an interview last week from a guy named Mike Cosper. Mike has just written a book titled Faith Among the Faithless. And 
he made a point that the book of Esther is all about hidden things. Esther's identity as a Jew is hidden. Haman's motivation in manipulating the king is hidden. God himself is hidden. But by the end of the story, the hidden things are revealed. Esther declares herself to be a Jew. Haman's plot is exposed. And over it all, God's providential hand is clearly seen. It made me think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. It says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There was an awful lot that Esther didn't know or understand about the situation that she found herself in. You ever been in her place? You just don't know how or why you ended up where you are? When Esther took that step of going to the king uninvited, she had no idea how it was going to turn out. She said it herself, if I perish, I perish. I don't know what the outcome will be. When she planned that lunch with the most powerful men in the kingdom, she had no idea how they would respond. She had to recall that Queen Vashti's reign had not ended well. And here she is about to challenge the most powerful counselor, the most honored man in her husband's kingdom. She had no idea how that was going to end. When she asked the king to revoke a rule, which according to the laws of the Medes and Persians was irrevocable, she had no idea if there could be any salvation for her people. All she knew was that she had been given an opportunity, and in trembling faith, she stepped out. You know, I've had plenty of things like that in my life. I bet you have too. Things that I don't understand. I haven't had any idea what the future was going to hold. And all I've known is what God put in front of me today what the next step was he was asking me to take. And I didn't know where that step was gonna end up. That's true for all of us, that's the walk of faith. God gives us one day at a time and he, he puts it in front of us today and says, will you trust me? Will you take the step I'm asking you to take? And we get caught up in the, yeah, but, all the things that could happen. He just says, will you trust me? Will you take the step I'm asking you to take. The Apostle Paul says that for now there is much that is unclear, but there's a day that's coming when we'll see Jesus face to face, and suddenly it'll all become clear. Here's a fun fact. When I decided I was going to preach on Esther this week, I wasn't looking at the calendar. Do you guys all know what Wednesday and Thursday this past week was? It was Purim. It's when the Jews remember their deliverance by the hand of Esther. Things that were so mysterious to Esther, we can look back and see God's hand and celebrate his work. There is a day coming when we too, standing in his presence, will look back on a lot of our own confusing chapters in our history. And suddenly we'll see how his hand was at work in all those things. And we too are going to celebrate. Mordecai's words are significant. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. Esther had no clue when her journey started that God might be up to something grand, but Mordecai recognized that sometimes God unexpectedly places us in unique positions to use us in ways that we never imagined. Mordecai knew something else that was relevant. He said, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. God will use us in his plans, but his plans are not dependent on us. But at the same time, failing to seize the opportunities that he gives us is only to our own detriment. So what can the story say to us? Well, I'd say first that God is always at work, even in the times and places that we are completely unaware. The question is, what does he want you to do where he has placed you? Why has God put you where you are? See, Esther's place of influence was really God's gift to her. She couldn't help how she looked. God simply gifted her with what she needed so that she would be positioned where she was needed. And you may not have Esther's good looks. You may not have my naturally wavy hair. <laughs> but God has given each one of us gifts that are uniquely ours. They're his gifts. They're not because we deserve it, not because we're so special. Haman, of course, would have claimed it all for himself. He would have said, it's all because of me. Esther recognized it wasn't all because of her. You've been given gifts that God has uniquely given to you. But Esther was responsible to use the gifts and the privileges God had given to serve something more than her own success. I actually thought of that as I was watching that opening thank you from Living Water. Um, many of you have very generously used things that God has blessed you with to share with people who have nothing so that they can hear the gospel. You know, Esther was living quite comfortably in the harem, oblivious to the world beyond, and, and she could have stayed there. She had the perfect excuse to not get involved. I mean, the laws of the Medes and Persians told her there was nothing that she could do the only way she could attempt to make a difference was to be willing to give up everything for the salvation of her people. The willingness to give up her own life, if need be, to try to save others. Which reminds me of something that Jesus once said to his disciples. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, the cross is what Jesus did for us. And picking up a cross to follow him is what he calls us to do. While Esther would not have understood that imagery, she nevertheless lived it out. She became this beautiful Old Testament picture of one of God's people choosing to do the hard thing, the self-sacrificial thing, to redeem the lives of those that she loved. God wasn't dependent on Esther's actions, but he did want her to act. So my question is, is there an opportunity that God is giving you right now 
but you're shrinking back. You've thought of all the excuses why it's not your responsibility and, and you, shouldn't, you shouldn't take that risk, and yet God keeps putting the opportunity in front of you and saying, are you willing to take a step of faith? Is there a need that would demand that you move out of your comfort zone? I really love Esther's approach. First, she asked those who loved her to pray with and for her. She knew that she couldn't go in there on her own. Second, she carefully thought through how to make the most of her opportunity. God wants us to, to think creatively, to think well about the opportunities he's given us. And Esther, I guarantee you, had thought well about what to do with the opportunity she was being given. Third, she was willing to risk everything to seize the opportunity that God was giving her. She says, if I perish, I perish. And what that is, that's faith. It's not fatalism. Esther knew what she's being called to do. The only thing she didn't know was the outcome. But that wasn't her concern. And when she acted in obedience, God did the most unexpected things. Do you think he can do that with us too? I do. Amen.